Welcome to Many Happy Returns, where we aim to make you a better investor. I'm Roman. And I'm Michael. Interest rates are rising at breakneck speed, and the impact on the value of assets is profound. Today, we look at how stocks, bonds, gold, and other assets respond in an environment where rates are climbing. I want to understand the reason interest rates are so influential, and if any assets actually benefit from rising rates. And in today's dumb question of the week, we ask, what is an interest rate swap? Okay, let's get into it. So interest rates are rising, and that seems quite unusual. So interest rates have been in a kind of secular decline, haven't they, since, what, the early 80s? So for someone like me, I have no real instinctive knowledge of how assets respond to rates going up. Yeah, we have to go back a really long way to see rates actually increasing, at least, you know, consistently increasing. Obviously, there were huge fluctuations, which were short term. But like you say, there's been a very big upward move in interest rates up to the 80s. And that was the Volcker period when inflation was high. And then it's been pretty much coming down ever since. But now it seems to have reached a turning point. So what we need to do is speak to someone old enough and wise enough (laughs) that they remember what it was like in a high interest rate environment. Well, I don't quite remember what it was like. You know, I mean, the Volcker period for me was a bit fuzzy because, you know, I was a kid. (laughs) Well, you weren't already like there at your Bloomberg terminal at like eight years old. Well, I did have a little safe, which I used to keep money in. And I told my mum, you know, look, you can get 12% interest in this bank account. And I was very excited at the time because I didn't understand inflation. So I didn't know that, you know, in real terms, you'd probably make a loss. Some would say you still don't, Roman. You remember your inflation predictions. (laughs) (laughs) Now, I think what people have finally admitted is you can't make inflation predictions. You know, the Fed's even admitted that. Yeah. But look, I think the thing about interest rates is if you look at different periods of borrowing, the drivers are very different. So that's why people always talk about the yield curve and the risk-free rate, because that's essentially what drives all of these rates. What's the yield curve doing? So it seems to me that when the yield curve moves up, so interest rates are rising, for almost all assets, it's bad news. And why is that? Well, yeah, I mean, for almost all assets, I mean, it's certainly not all assets. And you can buy assets which specifically increase in value when interest rates increase. But generally, what happens is if you've got a cash flow generating asset, in other words, it generates a stream of income stretching out potentially infinitely into the future, the really critical thing to understand is that a pound or a dollar in the future is worth less than a pound today. The time value of money. So once you've got your risk-free rates, is you can work out what these discount factors are to tell you how much you'd receive if you invest risk-free. But that also tells you, for each of the cash flows in the future, how much less it's worth today. Yeah, that makes sense. (laughs) (laughs) So let's say the interest rate's 2%. Then if I give you a pound today, it'll be worth a pound and two pence in a year's time. Whereas if I give you a pound in a year's time, it's worth roughly 2% less than that today. So it's worth 98 pence. Yeah, so this is the discount rate. And that's been rising as interest rates rise. So the value of money in the future is less. Yeah. Or if we move two years into the future, then if the rate's 2%, you know, it'll be roughly 96 pence. That's how much it's worth today. So if you imagine that you're going to be paid an infinite stream of cash flows, you'll see that as you go further and further into the future, if you've got a positive risk-free rate, the value of those cash flows will be worth less and less. So this could be a bond, which is paying you coupons every year, or a stock paying dividends, for example. Yeah, any kind of thing which generates cash. It could be a company because companies generate streams of revenue. It could be a bond, a perpetual bond perhaps, or an annuity on your pension. 
All of these things generate income and they can all be valued this way. And this is the fundamental theory behind how you price assets. So I kind of think of it like when interest rates are low, it's like running a marathon, right? You might fall behind at the start, but that's fair enough because maybe you can finish really strongly and catch up and win at the end. But when interest rates go really high, it's more like a 100 meter sprint. You've got to be sprinting right from the pistol, right? Yeah. Those kind of growth stocks, for example, where the cash flows are going to be way out in the future are certainly not helped by high interest rates. Because those are going to be whacked by these hugely discounted cash flows. So anything you can do to front load the cash flows in a high interest rate environment will be favourable. So growth, where you get sort of delayed gratification, is just not popular in a high rate environment. Whereas anything which front loads stuff, like value, for example, would be more favourable in this new environment. And I guess the other thing is that when risk-free rates are rising, those assets are now relatively more attractive than risk assets, aren't they? So why would I take risk? Now I can buy a government bond, which is paying me 5%, say. And that takes the shine off gold, because if gold doesn't pay you an income and it's a wasting asset, it doesn't generate income at all, then, you know, its value hugely decreases. If you can just lend money to the government, buy a risk-free government bond for, say, five years, and then just get a fixed rate of interest and get your money back at the end of it, and that rate of interest is pretty good, you know, say 5%, you know, we're not much less than that right now, then why would you buy gold? You know, it's much more volatile than a government bond, a short duration one anyway, and it doesn't generate an income. It's interesting though, isn't it? Because we tend to think of gold as the thing that is the safe haven and something we might run to in a bad economic environment, which we're in now. But what we're saying is that high rates, all else being equal, are bad for gold. Yeah. So if interest rates go up, that's a toxic environment for gold. But am I hiding a lot in that phrase, all else being equal? Well, yeah, because often what happens is the dollar strengthens because usually the Fed hikes before everyone else. And that's because, you know, they're quite economically strong and they tend to come out of these crises really well. And that means that the dollar will appreciate relative to other currencies and, of course, relative to gold because gold is priced in dollars. And so that's also bad for gold. But the other aspect of this is if the Fed shocks markets by raising interest rates too fast, then what can happen is it can spook markets, people get scared, they sell equity, and then gold has this kind of fear appeal where it does well in a crisis. So in that case, that tends to push up gold over the short term. So there's kind of two things pulling in opposite directions there, really, aren't there? And it's which of those is going to win out for gold? Yeah, I mean, it's fear on one side and it's... Economic sense on the other. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> kind of rational pricing, yeah. That's the thing with gold. It's kind of all irrational in a way, isn't it? Because it's just a shiny metal that we like. It's not really got anything about it. Yeah, it's got very few commercial uses. It does have some, but industrially, it's not very useful. I mean, we've mined more gold than we'll ever need, right, for industrial purposes. Yeah. It's all just sat in bank vaults. But gold has worked very well as a hedge historically when there is a really bad crisis. And if your money collapses, often gold's been seen as an alternative. So you say it's um, been seen as a good alternative. An alternative to what? Presumably bonds, right? That's the other safe haven. Yeah. And government bonds, obviously, if interest rates are going up, because they are a fixed set of cash flows in future, their value goes down. And the longer you've locked in a fixed rate of interest, the bigger the loss you get. So let's say you fixed in a bond at, say, 2% rate of interest. Those coupons will be fixed for the life of the bond. They're kind of baked into the bond. 
If you fix that in for five years and interest rates increase by 1%, then you're going to be missing out on that extra 1% for five years. So the price of your bond will fall by about 5%. Whereas if you fix that rate of interest for a 10-year bond, then you'll lose it for about 10 years. So that bond will go down for the same interest rate increase by 10%. So what you're saying is that in a rising rate environment, you want as short a duration bond as possible if you're going to own any bonds. Yeah. And so this is what fixed income managers will be doing. If they manage a portfolio of government bonds or corporate bonds is if they think interest rates are rising, they'll shorten duration. If they think interest rates are falling, they'll lengthen duration. You can kind of think of it using a sailing analogy where imagine you're sailing. If there's a storm coming, you're going to fill the sail. But if there's just a light breeze, you'll kind of unleash all of the sail you've got. You've lost me. I've never sailed. Last time I went on a boat, I dropped my sunglasses in the water and was annoyed all day. (laughs) (laughs) But at the moment, obviously, all of these bond fund managers will be furling the mainsail because if there is a storm coming, which has pretty much happened, then you don't want that duration risk. Hopefully they've done it already. Obviously, the storm's upon us now. So uh, hopefully they saw it coming. And can you avoid duration risk altogether by getting well, cash, I guess, or a floating rate bond, which is just constantly tracking whatever the latest interest rate is. Yeah, so floating rate bond, a floater, is kind of special because what it does is it resets the coupon of the bond based on whatever the risk-free rate is. And it'll do that regularly over a very frequent schedule, usually quarterly. That means that the duration's really short. It's only the reset frequency. So with these bonds, all you're taking is the credit risk. You've essentially removed the interest rate risk. All that's left is credit. I bet you're going to tell me the bad news is it's dodgy credit companies who use these bonds. Sometimes. I mean, sometimes governments use them. You know, you you could say some of those are dodgy credits too. But yeah, governments sometimes issue floaters. Not many. There isn't a huge demand for floaters, I've got to say. But it's the thing to have bought, right, this year. Oh, yeah. No question. I mean, that would have performed fine unless it's a dodgy credit that you bought. And if we're talking about credit quality, I guess the thing we're concerned with is the spread, isn't it? Yeah. So if you're a dodgy company, which looks like you might default on your debt, you'll pay an additional interest rate layered on top of the risk-free rate, where the more risky you are, the bigger that credit spread's going to be. So if you're a single B issuer, you know, you're junk rated, then you'll have a big fat spread. You don't like it because that increases your company's debt servicing costs, but that's what investors demand from you. And what about investment grade credit, rated AAA, say? Then you're going to have a tiny spread. So if you're Johnson & Johnson or Microsoft, then the spread is absolutely tiny. And sometimes these AAA companies trade below government bond yields. So they're even sub-government. Yeah, that never makes sense to me, because if the US government defaults and collapses, (laughs) it's not going to be good for Microsoft or Johnson & Johnson, is it? They haven't got an army, Romin. But these are sometimes technical factors. It's just demand, right? Supply and demand. So if people are desperate to buy these bonds, then the spread can turn negative. But it's unusual. So what happens to spreads in a rising rate environment? Do they get bigger? It depends on the reasons for the increasing interest rate. I mean, if it's just because growth is improving, so we're coming out of a recession, growth is getting better, well, that's kind of positive for credit. So in that case, you'd expect spreads to tighten. That isn't where we are. Not quite, unfortunately. (laughs) (laughs) Rates are rising for the bad reason. Inflation is high. And the bad reason, yeah. So inflation's high and growth is weak. 
If that's the case, then, you know, that's credit negative and that would widen credit spreads because it's less likely that the companies will be able to service their debt. There'll be more bankruptcies. You'll enter a kind of credit default cycle when there are lots of credit defaults. At the moment, we've got a very quiet credit market. You know, we've had very few defaults, but I suspect that's about to change. Is this what people refer to as the risk premia? Like when that increases, then credit spreads get wider and stock values drop. Yep, stock values drop, high yield credit falls most. So for example, if you go back to 2008 and look at the size of the falls, it kind of tells you where the risks lie. So equity lost about 55, maybe even 60% in some cases. High yield credit lost about 40%. Investment grade credit lost about 20. It really depends on the duration of the bond, of course, as well. But those were the rough losses. So these spreads will widen when there's a crisis and they'll tighten as you come out of the crisis. But that means that if you buy at the very peak of a crisis, you can get very good returns. Now, this is really risky because if you buy single corporate bonds and they default, you could lose 60% of your capital very easily, particularly if it's a junk bond issuer. Whereas if you buy a junk bond fund, those will recover and the entire fund doesn't go down, obviously, because it buys a portfolio of junk bonds. So if you can time these things, And you don't have to time it particularly accurately. You can just say, look, once the yield of this high yield bond fund reaches a certain level, so for example, if we look at HYG, which is the biggest junk bond fund in the US, that reached a yield of 12% at the very nadir of the sell-off in equity in 2008. So what you're saying is that fund each year would pay you a dividend of 12% just for holding it? Yeah, because nobody wanted it, because junk was essentially junk. You know, (laughs) it was a credit crisis and nobody wanted credit. But that was an incredible point to buy. And the risk-adjusted returns were just phenomenal. So where is that fund right now then? HYG selling off quite severely. And yields are rising. And yields are rising on HYG. So I'm keeping my eye on the yield for HYG and it's in my market crash shopping list. And if it hits, say, 7 8 9%, I'll definitely be thinking about buying some of that. Where is it now? So the current 12-month yield on HYG is 5.3%. Now, during the worst point in the COVID sell-off, that reached around 6.3%, and we're still a long way off that. Yields are increasing very rapidly as the price falls, but it's still not looking particularly juicy. Would we have to enter a real, real economic crisis to see it get to a yield where you'd be happy, that kind of 8% level? I think we're going to need to see some defaults. Credit markets are pretty pragmatic. They are quite pessimistic, but rational when it comes to pricing usually. And we still haven't seen any defaults in this cycle, nothing significant. But rising interest rates themselves can cause defaults, can't they? Because it increases the cost of capital for a company. Oh, yeah. I mean, if you imagine you're a zombie company, you've just been kept alive by zero interest rates. You could roll over the debt really cheaply and everything was fine, supposedly. But yeah, a lot of those zombies will be pushed over the edge. So we will see defaults increase because of rates increasing. But presumably there's a lag, isn't there, of them waiting for their debt to come up for renewal? in a way similar to how the mortgage market works in the UK, right, with the fixed term. But the day of reckoning has kind of been pushed away because during the period of very low interest rates, many of them refinanced because, of course, that was a sensible thing to do. And what credit analysts often do is to look for a wall of maturities, they call it. 
when lots of corporate bonds mature simultaneously, they call it a maturity wall. Yeah, when the crisis comes, these zombies will be first against the wall. (laughs) That's a kind of environment in which you get these real opportunities to buy credit. And so certainly people should be aware of it and look out for it because you can get some really juicy bargains. And the other thing I've heard said about corporate credit and the cost of capital is that as rates rise, it causes what's called the interest coverage ratio to decline. So let's imagine you're running a company and you've got a certain amount of cash left after you've paid all of your bills, your staff, your suppliers, and then you've got that amount of cash left over. What we then do is work out your debt servicing cost, which we know because you've issued bonds, you've got loans, and what multiple of that annual payment have you got in cash left over? So if the annual payment's going up, then you've got less as a multiple. So let's say you've got 100 million in cash left over to pay that debt. We know that the debt is 10 million, then you've got a 10 times interest cover, which is comfortable. But if the interest cover is less than one, if you've got less cash left over than you've got to pay on your debts, then... You're in big trouble. <laughs> well, I mean, technically, yeah, you're, you could trigger a default if that actually comes to pass, if you can't rustle up any more cash by selling assets. So this basically increases the risk, doesn't it, of defaults, which is the whole point. And it's why investors in this rising rate environment might demand a bigger risk premium which therefore lowers asset prices, especially stock prices. Yeah, and there are various ways to look at this. There's something called distance to default. This is a metric that came up a long while ago. But all of them have the same intuition, which is how wiggly are your assets? How much loss-absorbing capital have you got on your balance sheet, i.e. equity mostly? And how likely is it that you're going to wipe out that equity by a fall in the value of your assets? That's another way to look at default. But all of this stuff can trigger it. And if you haven't got enough equity capital, then essentially you've got a thinner margin. And if that gets wiped out, you're gone. So it's interesting when you think about stocks from everything we've said there, maybe companies which might do better here are ones where they have a large amount of cash on their balance sheet. Because one, you're getting paid more for that cash. Your interest payments are higher. And also you're kind of a more quality company. You can cover your debt more easily. So maybe they're the companies which will do better. You're talking my book because that's another thing on my market crash shopping list, which is quality. So we should just say what quality means. It's companies which have a strong balance sheet. So they've got steadily increasing profits. They've got good return on equity. So the amount of profit which they generate relative to their amount of capital is high and they haven't got too much debt. So they're not overly leveraged. So that's usually the definition of quality. Sounds like the winning formula. Well, you'd have thought so. But during a flight to shite, you know, which is what we saw after the pandemic, that's when quality underperforms. And so, you know, we've had a long period of quality underperformance now. So I think there could be some opportunities there as well if you buy one of these global quality funds. Now, I suspect that their overall nominal return of the stock will be dominated still by the market return, right? But they'll perform potentially relatively better than those more junky companies. Yeah, unless you're a hedge fund, you're not going to get pure factor exposure. So you buy beta, which is global equity performance, as you say, plus a little bit of extra due to the outperformance of the factor or underperformance, I should say. And when we're looking at stocks in this rising interest rate environment, so we've already said that value should, in theory, outperform growth because of the fact their revenues are coming in sooner. We've said that maybe quality will outperform junk. What about sectors? Are there sectors which typically do better with rising rates? The one everyone talks about is banks and financials. Yeah. 
Because, I mean, the funding model for banks, one of the ways they generate income is via their lending business. So the old joke used to be the three, four, five rule where, you know, you borrow at 3%, you lend at 4% and you're on the golf course at five o'clock. That's, <laughs> that's the way they used to, to run banks. Apparently, I can't say that from personal experience. I never left the office at that time, I've got to say. But certainly it was a very simple way to generate revenue if interest rates were stable. Is this the net interest margin? So that's NIM. Yeah, net interest margin, which is the difference between the rate at which you borrow and lend. Now, generally, if the yield curve's steeper, that means that the NIM is bigger. Unfortunately, at the moment, the yield curve is pretty flat, certainly in the UK and the US as well. That's not great for investment banks, for example. It's interesting. So is the reason the long end of the curve isn't increasing so fast? Is that just weak growth expectations? Well, it's actually because the policy rate, which is moving the short end of the curve, is going up like gangbusters. So that's that's (laughs) That's the problem. And the long end of the curve, which is driven by inflation and growth, has priced in a lot of inflation now. But, you know, the short end is moving up so quickly that it's kind of caught up. That's the essential problem for financials right now. Also, if you're entering a period of weak growth, financials tend to be cyclical. And if there's weak growth, they tend to suffer in terms of revenue. So that's not good for financials. And I guess the other thing, surely financials and banks would be negatively impacted if we do see default rates pick up. We do see people defaulting on their mortgages, things like that. Yeah, a lot of loans will go bad. And if they've got a big loan book and they haven't been too careful with the quality of their counterparties, then yeah, there's a big problem there potentially on their balance sheet. So is the thought that banks and financials typically outperform with rising rates, is that maybe not going to apply this time? Because we're looking at the past, we're saying, oh, rates were maybe rising because growth was strong, whereas this time it's rising for the wrong reason. Yeah, this is the wrong reason type of uh, (laughs) interest rate increase, unfortunately. But I think that's what we have to remember, isn't it? Is that when you're comparing to past rate increases, like we could learn the wrong lesson because we're rising for a different reason to why rates usually rise. Yeah, I think, for example, coming out of the 08 crisis, that was one where the economy was healing and interest rates were rising. In that case, yeah, financials were a pretty good bet, a great bet. Warren Buffett famously bought a lot of bank stocks at the worst point in the crisis. However, this time around, I think that's not going to work. So we've talked about gold, we've talked about bonds, touched on stocks. But what about real estate and property? Because that tends to be a very rate sensitive sector. I mean, you could argue that all the massive growth we've seen in the property sector over the last 20 years is because of falling rates. Yeah, falling rates and reasonable growth. You know, it was a great environment for property and property development. And many people have made huge fortunes with it. But obviously in this environment where interest rates are increasing really rapidly, commercial property in particular has been very badly affected in the UK, for example. Now, the problem is if you've got a commercial real estate fund, the things it owns tend to be very chunky. So it would be an entire shopping centre, an entire shopping mall, you'd call it in the US. And that's very difficult to sell, particularly if there's a crisis. And if there's a period of weak economic growth, a lot of those shops and the retail outlets on the premises will no longer be able to generate so much revenue and maybe they'll fall behind in their rent and so on. So this is a really awful situation for the commercial real estate manager. Now, what we found recently is that a lot of the defined benefit pension funds in the UK were heavy owners of real estate investment trusts because it gave a bit more juice to their returns. But 
because they ran into a problem where they had to sell their assets. And if you've got people pulling money out of your fund, then you can't sell the assets quickly enough in order to pay them back their money. So what happens to these funds is they get gated. You stop people taking their money out. And that's happened to many funds back in 2018. And it's likely to happen again right now, because I think a lot of these funds will be seeing outflows. Yeah, I read that many of the UK commercial property REITs are gating now because got all these pension funds looking to sell assets. They hold REITs, they're selling REITs. And <laughs> the REITs are like, who wants to buy my shopping mall? <laughs> yeah. So that's a kind of crisis asset in this kind of environment. And it's not so much that rates are increasing, it's that they're increasing so quickly. I mean, really, we've never seen increases in interest rates at this rate ever. I mean, that's what the Bank of England just said when they were saying why they had to buy long-dated gilts in this emergency facility. I mean, the pace of interest rate rises means it's not really a surprise that the financial markets are starting to creak and to potentially break. Yeah, this is the kind of environment where you find out where the breaking points are and the weak points in the economy. So the thing with property, both commercial property and residential property, is that it has a lot of toxic elements right now. It's arguably massively overvalued compared to wages. There's a lot of leverage built in there. People have taken out big mortgages and it's massively illiquid. And all that debt, all that leverage is going to need to be refinanced within the next two to five years at much higher rates. Yeah. So for example, for a property video I've just done, I looked at what would happen if the bank rate, the central bank's policy rate in the UK increases to 6%. And instead of having a price to income ratio of seven times, which is where we are now, it's at an all time high, it would fall to around four times if we go back to historical averages, when that's the bank rate. If that happens, then, you know, we've got a 30% fall in property prices. Yeah, a lot of people will just say that's not going to happen because of the supply-demand dynamics. I'd be one of them. You know, I think that'll certainly cushion the blow. But if we use a historical analogy, then that's what you'd expect. That's where the price-to-income ratio has been, when the bank rate's been that high. I don't know that we've ever gone into a period of rising rates with such overvalued property, though. So I think it's no one really knows how it's going to play out. And the other factor is the number of yield insensitive buyers, because about a third of the properties in the UK are held by people who own the property outright. Now, they don't really care if interest rates increase because they'll probably be able to move to a comparable property for very little mortgage or no mortgage. In fact, in the UK, we've got more outright owned houses than we have mortgage owned houses. But isn't the pricing of the market driven by the marginal buyer? Sorry to get all economics in you here, Robin. Certainly the new supply of house buyers, you know, you've got a constant treadmill of people passing away, passing on their house, and then first time buyers entering the market. So certainly for a long period of time, if you've got no first time buyers, then that's a huge problem. You know, who's going to buy the houses? But we're not there yet. I think we've had lots of first-time buyer purchases, but now those people might be overstretched and we might start to see this situation where we get negative equity for recent purchases, such as mine. Yeah, if prices fall enough to wipe out the deposit effectively. Yeah, and it's a leveraged loss, of course, because you've borrowed money to invest. You can end up with a negative value. The thing is, we might not get a massive crash in house prices, right? But all the ingredients are there to cause it. 
Well, you couldn't create a more perfect storm. I mean, I hate that word, perfect storm, but <laughs> this is it. You know, you've got less disposable income, a weakening recession, massively increasing interest rates, also very rapidly increasing. And yet, as we speak, house prices still increasing by over 9% year on year. Something has to give though, Roman. What's it going to be? <laughs> as far as I can see, the outcomes are either people just love their houses so much and put all their money into that, that they're willing to just crush the rest of their disposable income and not buy anything, <laughs> just live in a nice house with no luxuries. Or there's going to be a lot of forced sellers who can't afford their mortgage payments at the higher rates and just have to sell into a distressed market. Yeah, I think it's not going to be pleasant. Any of those outcomes will be painful. Or the government bails out people. I think that's very unlikely. I think given the bailout on energy already and the kind of whole fiscal blow up, or the way the markets blew up in response to the fiscal plan, I think it's unlikely they're going to be bailing out even more people. Because if you just imagine the number of people who are going to have negative equity, if prices fall by, say, 20%, that would be a lot of people. I mean, they could potentially do a bailout that's not a bailout, right? They could do it off the government balance sheet so they could underwrite mortgages for the banks and say, give people mortgage holidays, or they could pass a law that forces banks to extend the term of the mortgage to keep the monthly payment lower. Are these not things where they can do it rather than just chucking money at people? Well, all of this costs money and they're going to have to fund it somehow given the tax cuts they've announced, also the other bailouts they've got, such as the energy price guarantee, I think that's going to be very problematic to pass that politically. Also, I don't necessarily think that they should. Like, There's moral hazard in advantaging people who over-leveraged in a bull market. I think that's the problem. There is a huge moral hazard problem. I mean, one thing they could do is introduce the system in the US where you've got 30-year mortgages. But of course, when are you going to fix a 30-year rate? Is it when rates are at 6%? No, it's when rates are at 2%. Yeah, I mean, if you look at refis in the US, no one Zero. is refinancing yeah. their mortgages right now. <laughs> <laughs> but here's a point, right? If you look at that, and effectively, economists talk about people being locked into their houses because you have locked in a rate for 30 years of, say, 2%. Now rates are 6% or 7%. You can't move rationally as an economic actor because you'll be massively increasing your costs. So you're locked into your house. So two things. One, that's going to massively lower transaction volumes because people are just not going to be moving. That's bad for the economy, right? And also, just on a macro picture, it's presumably bad for economic mobility that people can't as easily move around to get new jobs and to work in a dynamic way because they're locked into one house in one location for 30 years, potentially. I think the other thing which has changed is physical location being important. And I think if people can telework or work remotely, then that does remove some of the geographic barriers to work. For example, the person who edits my videos for YouTube, he lives in Pakistan. Yeah, you're not made of money, Roman. <laughs> but he's great, you know, and he's an incredible guy. And he's just had a baby and, you know, we get on really well. He's really hardworking. And, you know, he could be on the moon for all I know because we just talk to each other via electronic means and we've never actually met. I'd love to meet him. But that's just one example of where geographic ties are kind of irrelevant. Yeah, we've never been in the same room as each other. Not yet. <laughs> but it's interesting isn't it that that nature of work is probably a positive so i think the kind of not being able to move is less of a problem it's still not no problem 
Yeah, you're just thinking of office jobs, though. Like, a huge part of the economy is not people shuffling paper around. Yeah, if you're a carer or you have to work in retail where it's client-facing, clearly that's not going to work. But certainly for the office-type job where, you know, you're just kind of shuffling bits rather than physical stuff. The solution, I think, in the US, if it really came to it, if it really was gumming up the economy that people are locked into their houses, would be to make mortgages more portable to new homes. Yeah, because at the moment it is linked to the house where you live. Yeah, I think portable mortgages would solve the problem. But then, of course, you've got to worry about if you do move the mortgage, then what's the quality of the house you move to? Oh, yeah. So there'd be a lot of difficulties there. Yeah, you're just creating a whole nother problem. Yeah. But still, yeah. <laughs> you're kicking the can nicely. <laughs> But it always amazed me that we don't have 30-year mortgages in the UK. You know, why not? It would just make a lot of sense. We've covered a lot of the major asset classes here. Stocks, bonds, gold, real estate. And the story seems to be you'd rather rates are falling than rising for all of those sectors. Yeah. So what assets do actually benefit from rising rates? Are there any? Well, you can craft them, but they are pretty odd. And if you're a retail investor, you can't buy them directly. I mean, you do have access to certain things like inverse treasury ETFs. Now, those pay you the daily inverse return of what you'd receive with the treasury fund. So those are negatively linked to interest rates. So you can buy some assets which are explicitly negatively correlated to rising interest rates. But these are all kind of fake assets, right? They're derivatives and they're like things that investment banks have cooked up. They're not really owning anything directly. They're kind of anti-owning something. Yeah, <laughs> betting against the actual owners of assets. But look, that's where we started, which is that when you buy something, you're buying a stream of cash flows. That's effectively what most assets are. And they all have the same sign when it comes to increasing interest rates because the discount factors reduce their cash flow value. So that's why everything is kind of hugely skewed towards being negatively correlated with rising rates. There is a great asset to own when rates are rising, and that is a long-term fixed rate loan. If you're the person that's fixed their mortgage at 2% for 30 years, you're making effectively a huge amount of money in real terms. Yeah. Or if you're a lender. So let's say you're lending to someone at a floating rate, then your income is going to increase over time because the coupons are going to reset higher. So, you know, that's the other side of the coin, which is from the lender's point of view, as long as the person you've lent the money to can continue servicing the debt, if they're not going to run into credit problems, then, you know, it's a positive for you. But it is interesting, isn't it, that I heard the situation just before the pandemic and into the pandemic being described as the everything bubble. So many asset classes were record highs based on different valuation metrics. It looked like all assets had bubbled together in a way. And this was Jeremy Grantham's point. Are we now in the everything crash? Are we in the start of that? We've just got to hope that they pop at slightly different times. Otherwise, I think Jeremy Grantham's right. You could have three and a half bubbles popping simultaneously, which isn't great. If you want to discuss ideas about how to invest in a rising rate environment, Pensioncraft is a great place to do it. You can chat to each other on Slack and you get access to lots of members-only content. If you want to learn more about that, just go to pensioncraft.com. Okay, today's dumb question of the week is what is an interest rate swap? So I've been hearing a lot about these things lately, Roman. Swaps are cool. I love them. Okay, so let's imagine you decompose a bond. You know, this is how derivatives work. You take an asset which is traditional, you slice up its risks, and you package them as separate products. So if you want the credit risk part of a bond, that would be a credit default swap. 
If you want the interest rate risk bit of a bond, you have something called a payer's swap. The way this works is it's an agreement whereby you pay, say, a fixed rate of interest over a certain period of time. And in return, you receive a floating rate of interest, which used to be set according to LIBOR plus a spread. Now it's going to be Sonia. Okay, you're introducing more and more jargon here. (laughs) What's LIBOR and what's Sonia? Okay, so this is the risk-free rate. You can kind of think of it, it's the rate at which banks borrow and lend with each other, which a lot of these floating rate instruments are set relative to. So you receive on one leg, you pay on the other, and one of those is either floating or fixed. So we're literally swapping one stream of cash flows for another. Yeah, you are literally swapping one stream of cash flows for another, yeah. And why would I do this? Well, if you've got a bond and you want to get rid of the interest rate risk, well, you could do that with a swap. So you can turn a fixed rate bond into a floater. Now, when you buy a bond, you're going to receive fixed payments. Those are your coupons. But you don't want that because that makes you sensitive to interest rates. If rates rise, you're going to make a loss. So what you do is you pay away those fixed stream of cash flows that are given to you and swap them for a set of floating cash flows, which, as we've said, a floater is interest rate insensitive. So who would do something like this? Well, any asset manager that wants to reduce their interest rate risk, or let's say that you've got a big portfolio of bonds, but you don't want to sell them, right? Because you've really chosen the credit names very carefully, but you don't want the interest rate risk and you think rates are rising. Well, you just enter into a payer swap. But why would anyone take the other side of that bet if rates are going to be rising? Well, an investment bank would do that, who would then lay off that risk with somebody else using other derivatives. But someone has to take the risk somewhere at the end of the day, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But this is how derivatives work. You just buy and sell the risks. And there's always someone in the market who's willing to buy it. I mean, if there wasn't, the market wouldn't function. But presumably someone who's the counterparty here, who's deciding to take on the interest rate risk on your behalf, effectively, is charging you a premium to do it. But that's what makes a market. You know, there's always someone who thinks the market's going to go the other way. The problem is that a lot of these derivatives have to be margined. So you have to put up some collateral. So you're making an assumption about volatility because let's say that rates increase hugely. Anybody who's got a receiver's swap will lose lots of money. Well, what's going to happen? The counterparty or the exchange will insist on more collateral. Does this remind you of anything? Sounds like a kind of margin call. Sounds like the last two weeks, in fact. Yeah. (laughs) Sounds like those LDI pension funds. Yeah. So I think this is why these interest rate swaps are suddenly quite relevant to everybody. Plus, if you've just got a mortgage, which is fixed for two years, how do you think the bank ensures that they haven't got interest rate exposure? Because if interest rates are varying and they're receiving a fixed interest rate, then how can they turn that into something which is floating? Oh, yes, a swap. So that's why swap rates are used to set your two-year fix and your five-year fix, because that's how the banks hedge the risk. Yes, I think that's the misunderstanding a lot of people have when they're looking at mortgage rates. They think it's driven directly by the bank rate set by the Bank of England. But it's not, is it? It's set by these interest rate swaps. Because that's how they're hedged. But all of this stuff is going to be set based on the yield curve. You know, that's the kind of ground rock on which all risk is built. If gilt yields increase a lot, so do swap rates, so do the fixed mortgage rates. So all of this stuff is like a kind of fixed income zoo, which all lives together very harmoniously. 
but occasionally the walls to the cages break down, all the animals start eating each other, and the Bank of England has to bail everybody out. I could just see Andrew Bailey as a zookeeper. I could see him being eaten by the tigers. A hearty lunch for them. (laughs) (laughs) So when investment banks have crafted an asset class like this, for good reason, I imagine that it then becomes a product that speculators can bet on and it is a way to sort of gamble on the direction of interest rates. Oh, yeah, because these are hugely leveraged. Whereas if you buy a bond, you have to pay, I don't know, 100 million to buy the face value of the bond. If you have an equal amount of interest rate risk as that bond, you'd only have to put up a tiny percentage of the value of that bond to get the same interest rate exposure. So if you want to speculate that interest rates are going to go up, then what you do is you'd enter into a payer swap and that'll give you the same interest rate exposure, but it'll be negative. So if rates increase, you make a profit and it's a leveraged profit. You can win big with these, but of course you can also lose big. And is this market big enough that there's systemic risk built in? Oh, lordy, yes. The thing is, interest rate swaps are just so useful because there's a huge amount of corporate debt out there and government debt and loads of financial actors who want to hedge their interest rate risk. So it's a hugely liquid and widely traded instrument globally. But when rates are rising, like we've said, at the fastest pace on record, is that going to cause problems? So we've already seen that it basically meant these pension funds had to start posting massive amounts of collateral. They didn't have enough cash to do that. Is there going to be other things that start shaking out if rates keep increasing? It's not so much the increases, which is the problem, because you could say if you've hedged your portfolio, if you've hedged the interest rate risk, that'll avoid a problem. So those are the companies which have done very well out of this. If they have hedged their interest rate risk, they're not going to take a loss. The danger comes when rates are very volatile, because it's the volatility, the daily movements and yields, which makes people have to post more collateral. That's when it's really shaky. And that's what's caused the problems recently, which is that we've had these huge fluctuations in interest rates. You know, no one foresaw that that would happen. I heard an interesting point on the Odd Lots podcast, which was that risk systems at pension funds and investment banks and all sorts of other institutions are sort of based on historical precedent. And now this volatility is in the system. It's been logged. It's there. It kind of going forward will mean people have to post more collateral just in normal times because we now know the volatility can be so high. Yeah, that's true. For example, many risk systems have a look back window. So let's say it's five years. And I remember when Lehman, the Lehman event, dropped out of that window. Everyone was kind of excited because it meant they they didn't have to worry. We can get crazy again. (laughs) 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 That will never happen again. So we've got a period now where money is going to sort of have to be taken off the table and just posted as collateral or more money than was previously. And guess what that means? Yes, it means things are going to be more expensive, probably. Yeah, I heard Toby Nangle sum it up nicely when he said, you can't unburn toast. (laughs) (laughs) People were saying, how can like the government row back on what they've done and fix everything quite nicely? But the thing is, you can't. It's in there now. It's in the system. Yeah. I, th- I think it's been pretty atrocious and we're going to pay the price for a long time. Thank you for joining us for Many Happy Returns. It would be great if you could leave us a quick rating or review on Apple, Spotify or wherever you listen to the show. And do remember to check out pensioncraft.com for all the information about our membership, courses and investment coaching options. Many Happy Returns is a Pension Craft production, co-hosted and executive produced by Romin Nakiza and Michael Pugh. 
This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes and is not financial advice. We do not provide recommendations or endorse any decision to buy, sell or hold any security. We cannot be held responsible for any actions listeners may take and investors are encouraged to seek independent financial advice.